few other things. We've got a lot to cover. I want to start with a premise tonight, something that, again, we've walked through, we've talked about covenant, and we've talked about the items or what goes into a covenant. And one of the things that goes into a covenant between the two parties is that of an oath. In other words, there's vows that are made to each other. You see it in the covenant of marriage. You see the two, you know, I take thee to be my lawful wedded, to have and hold from this day forth through sickness and health, you know, all that fun stuff. That, that, that's a vow. That's a covenant oath that we take. And as we've seen, covenants in the Bible times were always sealed with an oath that was taken by both parties to that covenant. And they're taking oaths to eat with each other and at the same time calling on God to be their witness. And calling on God to be their witness was the guarantee of that covenant. In the new covenant that God makes with us, understand this. It's the premise of understanding this. He swears by himself. By himself. He, in other words, of who he is. He is the guarantee both of the human and the divine side that the covenant shall be made and kept. Now, this is the absolute certainty that we have of the covenant. It's, it's made and guaranteed by God. Grab that. And, and I say that because if the covenant had been made with us, then if we had been a part of the oath, <laughs> then it would have depended upon our oath for its fulfillment, and you know how we are. It would have been broken within hours of being sworn to, you know? But sworn to by God, it is as sure and unchangeable as God is. That's very key. So I want to talk to you tonight as we study what makes up covenant about the oath of God, the oath of God. Hebrews chapter 6 says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Now, all of the announcement of the new covenant through the prophets, came with the same solemn, unilateral commitment by God to do what he promised to do. And, and the making of the covenant and the, and the bringing to pass in history, you have the promises that depended solely upon God. Nobody else, nothing, solely upon God. From, from the very beginning, the initiative of our salvation has come from God. I don't know if you really grab that or understand that. Humankind has not asked him for salvation, nor really have we shown any desire to be saved. You've got the, the, the newly fallen couple, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They didn't show any signs of repentance at all. They, they were insolent. They were hiding from God. They were wishing that he would go away and leave them alone. And in order to work out their, their, their sin agenda, and when he spoke to them, they, they did nothing but dodge his questions and showed no interest in confessing that they had sinned. The only thing they were willing to talk about was the feelings that sin had left them with. 
You know, if you take a look at Scripture, the Holy Spirit's commentary on humankind is devastating. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 19. It says, and this is the condition or the condemnation. The light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Look, if humankind was to be saved and the eternal purpose of God to make us his sons and daughters and intimate friends, if that was going to be realized, then God had to do it without any help from humanity. And this gift, remember, he swore by himself to do. Now, in the Garden of Eden, a very short time after they had sinned, God made a covenant with the entire human race in Adam. In it, he announced what he would do to save the race that was potential in the first couple. He announced the very first promise of their salvation and deliverance to the bondage of Satan. Take a look at it in Genesis 3. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice the capital S there. Not plural, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, notice, if you will, that 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 this promise contains no reference to humans. It, you know, as far as bringing it to pass, it refers only to the I will of God. He, he was the guarantee of the covenant salvation that he announced here. And he committed himself to placing a supernatural enmity between humankind and the serpent that would culminate in the coming of a certain seed who would utterly defeat the serpent and crush his head. There were no ifs, no conditions that humans must fulfill if this was going to come to pass in their history. Only the unconditional announcement that hung on the oath of God. Say that with me. Oath of God. Say it one more time. Oath of God. Look at Genesis 22 here. It says, blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, as the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament unfold, Details of salvation that would be contained in the new covenant were being made known. They, they were made with a series of I wills. They were declarations made by God that he would unilaterally do. So take a look at Jeremiah here. Here it is. This, uh, uh, it says, but this is the covenant that I will make the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall each man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Ezekiel says this, 
He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, in, in Daniel's prophecy, he announced that he had determined or, or carved out a period of time in which he would accomplish a certain work. Take a look at it. <coughs> Excuse me. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now listen, for God to swear by himself to accomplish the promises of the covenant, to me is shocking. I mean, it means that if he did not perform the terms of the covenant, then he would cease to be, and all of creation would fall into basically nothingness. His spoken word would be enough. For he is, what, the God who cannot lie. But in order that we would have an understanding of his absolute unchangeable purpose, he added, he added to his word a covenant oath. We, that's exactly what we just got done reading in those passages. We are given <clears throat> a covenant oath by which we may never, as a result, doubt that he will fulfill every word of the covenant promises to everybody who calls upon him. Hebrews says this, watch this, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutable the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Those are huge words, my friend. Now, these promises <clears throat> bound to fulfillment by the oath of God, they cover every cry of the hearts of human beings in the, in the state of sin and spiritual darkness. They guarantee that God will do the following. And I put these up there for you to follow. Number one, remove their guilt and shame, freeing them from the authority of sin and death. Give them the motive, desire, and enabling power to live in love for God and their neighbors. Cause them to belong to him, bringing them into the covenant family of God. Free them from bondage to Satan and the powers of darkness. Grant them the knowledge that God is with them, blessing them and all they do. And bring them into union with himself, placing his spirit within them. Now, another word that should get our attention, discovering the covenant as the foundation upon which the faith of, of men and, and women in Scripture stood was the word faithfulness. 
His faithfulness is the outworking of his covenant oath. And, and he did not need, as, as humans do, to swear an oath in order to bind himself to keep the covenant. The covenant does, listen, the covenant does not make him what he would not otherwise be, but is the means of revealing to us who he eternally is. Now, the root Hebrew word for faithfulness is aman, aman, which meant to be certain, enduring, to trust or believe. And from that root word, we have, we have three words. The first word is amen, which translated in English, amen, or so it is. The second word is amet, which is translated as truth or true. And the third word is amuna, which simply means faithfulness. Now you put these all together and we have a God who is infinitely reliable to be counted on at all times, constant and unchangeable. Take a look at 2 Timothy here. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Malachi chapter 3 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. All that God is, friend, he always is. He never contradicts himself or acts in a way that is inconsistent with himself. He cannot improve any more than he can degenerate. Who he is is who he was and forever will be. Now, I want you to say amen to that. James says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the fathers of light, the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James undoubtedly had the sun and the moon and the planets at least in mind when he wrote this verse. The sun is the light of our solar system. The word turning was used to describe the rotating of the planets, which always left one side in the dark. And, 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 and God has no dark side. He is the father or uncreated radiant light. And in him there is no shadow. There is no darkness. There is no change or variation in him. All that he was... He is and ever shall be. Now, if, if, if I stand next to my tomato plants at home, which, by the way, have gone, you know, all that rain and wind, and they just, they're done. They are done. But if I stand next to them, they're in a constant change as the sun moves across the sky, and, and the shadows change, and they come and they go until finally... You got all, 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 all is in shadow of twilight, basically. Now, understand, I do not come to God wondering what will have changed in him today. He does not change. He does not turn. We can be sure that he will be unchangeable and the same forever. His faithfulness is often described as his being a rock. Look at Deuteronomy. It says, he is the rock. His work is perfect. 
for all his ways are justice, a God of truth without justice, righteous and upright is he. Psalms says this, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He, he is incapable, friend, of making a promise that he cannot perform. For every word he says is the perfect expression of who he is. His word is in complete accord with reality. His word and his deed, they're, they're one. For, I, I mean, for him to speak his word is for it to be done. And, and, and even though it may take centuries to be made manifest in history, it, his word is done. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That, and, 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 and there is no contingency that can arise that would not have been taken into consideration and worked as a result into his purpose. Isaiah 55 says this, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. First Kings says this, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. Then you have Isaiah again in, in chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Your counsel of old are faithfulness and truth. Look, the, the covenant faithfulness and loving kindness, they, they meet in him. He is the faithfulness and the loving kindness of God walking among, among us in flesh. He does not have the truth. He is the truth. John says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Revelation says, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Hebrews says this, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make prohibition for the sins of the people. Now, I'm, I'm giving you a lot of scripture, and I've got a lot more to give you, but I want you to see how it all ties in in scripture. Biblical faith, friend, looks outside of itself to the God who made the promise. It rests solely on the character of God and the covenant oath that he has sworn. Faith is the committing of one's entire person, the whole person, past, present, future, to the faithfulness of God, knowing that he cannot deny himself, as we read. Faith is totally absorbed with its object. And, 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 and the God, I'm talking about the God of covenant, that the believer's faith is as sure as the faithfulness of the one he 
or she rests in. We live in a world, uh, and this is where I'll get down to some, uh, please understand. The world is filled with definitions of faith that have been given to us by advocates of self-help, positive thinking, new age, and, and witchcraft, friend. Many of these definitions have found their way into the Christian media, media and, and as a result has greatly affected the way Christians understand what faith is. And, and I'm talking about sincere believers that are caught in this deception and, and they try to bring to pass the promise of God with this pseudo-faith that's, that's born of the flesh that is, in my book, both futile and, and wreaks havoc in the believer's walk with God. So what I want to take a look at real quick is, is what biblical faith is not, for just a moment. Faith is not an energy that resides within the believer. It's not a power that, when built up and focused, the believer has the ability then to use, or to make things happen. It's not what faith is. I mean, even to the point of forcing God's hand. Faith is not a work, it's not a struggle to arrive at a state of mind where the hoped-for blessing can be seen or felt or, or, or even possessed. There, there are thousands of believers who, who look upon the, the acquisition of faith as a mental struggle, the intense focusing of thoughts on a desired kind of object or a promise in order to bring it to pass. This is a work of the flesh that arises from the creature mind and has nothing to do with the faith that the Bible speaks of, which is rest in God. Rest in God. There are others who understand faith as being the, in the words of a promise that's found in Scripture. The, the words of the promise are then <laughs> repeated and repeated as in their continual repetition, they're, they're looking for it to draw the desired blessing in a physical existence. The, the, sorry, but that reduces the holy words of Scripture to the level of a magic spell in which God is being manipulated into doing what he said he would do. The Christian understanding of faith radically parts company with witchcraft. New age, positive thinking, and self-help. All of these have in common the using of words as a formula for gaining a desired end. Hope you heard that. The faith of the Christian has nothing to do with formulas or spells, but is rooted, listen, in the relationship with God that has been established by covenants. Faith is not directed at the words of a promise, but rests in the one who made the promise. Rests. Biblical faith is not found within us, either as, as, as a natural energy or, or some kind of labor, but in beholding and responding to his faithfulness to his covenant oath. We trust in his character and what he has spoken, he will do. I, I know a lot of people that get mad at God because 
you're not, he's not doing what I know he's supposed to do. Or just mental thinking. Look, faith is to be likened to the eye of the spirit. All right? Let me explain this. The physical eye is not aware of itself unless <laughs> there's something wrong. You ever get something in your eye? You know you have an eye. The eye comes to focus. But the eye normally functions by seeing and, and like recording an object. If it becomes self-conscious and, and, and is just looking at itself to see how good of an eye it is, then it ceases to function as an eye. Likewise, when you're talking about faith, faith is not self-conscious. Morbidly checking itself to gauge its strength. Do I have enough faith? Do I not have enough faith? Do I have more faith? Do I need more faith? But it's continually looking at its object. God revealed in the Lord Jesus. Faith comes from a revelation of the love and faithfulness of God specifically revealed in Jesus who is the covenant. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, according to Hebrews 12. Matter of fact, take a look at Romans 10 here. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, please hear me when I tell you the word of God is more than the words written on the passages of our Bible. The word of God ultimately is who? Jesus, the son of God who became flesh and lived among us. He is the final outspeaking of God to us. Faith is a relationship with him, a submission and obedience to him. And so we read of, of course, the obedience of faith. Faith is not a, a mental marathon with the goal of bringing to pass our agenda using formulas fashioned out of the words of Scripture. Faith never forces the hand of God, but submits to him, responding to his covenant words, knowing that he who promised is faithful to perform them. Faith is trust in God who is and what he has done. For that trust arises, from that trust arises our belief that he will be faithful and do as he said. I'm going to say that again. From that trust, there arises belief. You're not going to get belief until you trust. Right? And then at that point, our belief is that he will be faithful and do as he said he would do. Well, when God made covenant with Abraham, it, it is said that, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. He believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. First of all, he believed the Lord, and then he believed the word of the promise made by the one who counted it faithful. Do you get that? There, there, there are others who... Uh, just plainly do not expect to live the Christian life. And such people would actually describe the Christian life in, of terms and like wallowing in their guilt and shame and their impotency to be able to, 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 to just live it. 
They, they, they call to God all the time for mercy. And, and it's like a beggar who's asking for a quarter. You know, the continual cry to God for his help and salvation without any genuine expectancy of receiving it. But they know nothing about the oath of God in which he has committed himself to answer our cry. So some of them would be shocked, I think, and even offended if God did answer them. I mean, they would feel deprived of their miserable cry that, you know, mercy, of, of crying out for mercy that they call their, their, their Christian life, if you want to call that a Christian life. Look, it is in the oath of God that we discover the uniqueness of the gospel. The key words of the gospel are not struggle, try, try harder. The key words are to surrender to yield to, rest in, believe on the Lord Jesus, who is the covenant. All these words then indicate that we have come to the end of our struggles and, and failing attempts to live a godly life and have come to stake our hope on who he is and what he has promised, what he has promised and achieved. Man, I, I remember my life as, as, a, as a newborn Christian. Oh, how many of you remember that day that you said yes to him? You know, then you're in that church. And, 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 and from there on, you remember what that life was like? It, for me, it was a continual struggle to be a victorious Christian. I, look, I was always taught about the power of God. But... I was taught very little on the grace of God. Uh, there was nothing of this covenant oath to save. Being holy to what I understood, what I was taught back then, being holy was a matter of keeping God's rules and the rules of the church, a strict regime of Bible reading and praying and witnessing to those outside the church. You'd reach... The altar every Sunday night. That was the key night, man. That was a key service. Sunday night, you know, you'd hit that altar after the pastor beat you up to a pulp, you know, and, and you'd rededicate your life. And then, and then as a result, you'd walk out and you'd be feeling good about yourself. Hallelujah. And then came Monday. And by Wednesday, everything had what? Fallen apart and your promises to God on Sunday night were, they were over and you were feeling guilty and hitting yourself, okay, you know, and, 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 you know, you even reach a point where you needed others to compare yourself to, so you could feel better about yourself, so that next Sunday night, you'd be back there at the altar, and you'd be rededicating your rededicated rededications again, telling God, I'm sorry, I'll never do this, I'll do that, and then, and then one day, I, I read from Jeremiah 31, and the terms of the new covenant, Believe me, I, I didn't even know what a covenant was or that the gospel was the announcement of a new covenant. I didn't even know there was an old one, okay? But those words reached me. Let, me. let me go over them again. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now, I, I'm going to give you, I'm going to, down the road, I'll, I'm going to explain that one part, that we are the Israel of God. 
Okay, it's, it's not a, 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 an outward circumcision. It's the circumcision of the heart. Read Galatians for Pete's sake in the meantime. That'll give you a lot of insight. He says, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. Have you been out there on a stone tablet? Yeah, it's written on the hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. I don't care whether you've been saved 90 years or nine seconds. You know the Lord. From the least to the greatest, says the Lord. Now, somebody who's 90 years old should know more about him. But you know him intimately as much as, look, I will, for I will forgive the, all these, hang on this. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. When I read those words, it dawned on me that in all the time I had been a Christian, I really didn't know him. I, I had known about him and the behaviors I was supposed to have as a believer. Hello? There rose up in me a longing to have a first-hand relationship with him instead of rules to live by that I had come to associate with being a Christian. That last phrase, it just riveted my attention. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It, it blew my mind that God would not remember my sins anymore. I come to believe that that was all he knew of my past was of me was my past and that I was doomed to repeat it over and over and over again. That 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 is, I believe, why many of us wallow in our sense of, of shame and guilt, making us feel as if God was <laughs> constantly angry against us. Big eyeball in the sky where lightning comes out and gets you when you do something. Look, I, I read on. Look, look at verse 33 again. It says. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I had never thought of him as my God and certainly never thought of myself as belonging to a special, in a special way to him. So what life is, or was the scripture talking about? A, a life where there's no sense of guilt and shame before God who knew everything Every thought that passed through my mind, every word that came off of my tongue, and every act I did. I mean, these, these, these were incredible words to me. I don't want that, that I, I wanted this. How do you get it? What did I have to do? I mean, I don't know about you, but it had been drilled into me that there was a price to pay, a dedication to make in order to get something from God. What was the price tag here? That's what I needed to know. And, 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 and what did I have to do to receive such a life? I, I read it over and over, convinced there had to be some enormous price tag that went with this. What did I find? Nada. Instead, what stood out to me was the repeating of, I will, I will, throughout the passage. These verses stated that it was God's intention to do these things, and there was no price tag for me to pay. Whew. I saw for the first time the nature of faith. 
Faith did not originate in my making promises with, with some ever-increasing intensity and determination, promises that I had to hope I'd keep. Neither was it my vow or intentions to be a better Christian for him. Instead, it was my simply saying thank you, thank you for the promises that you have made, submitting his intention, submitting to his intention for me. I mean, th th this was radical. Turning everything I had understood of the gospel on its head. That's when it broke for me that I had to come to the place where I no longer lived for him, but lived from him instead. And my starting point was no longer me, but, but him. And my part was to say, was, well, I should say, my promise, my, my starting point was, was not to say, I promise to try harder, but instead just simply say to him, yes, do in me even as you have said. <laughs> Looking at Mary. Talk about joy. That, that, that didn't mean that I, I you know, I, I went through the rest then. I've been going through without any ups or downs, falls or failures in my walk with him. I have and I do. I'm human just like the rest of you. But what I had seen never left me. It was a lot of years later that I realized that what God had been doing was leading me by the Spirit to rest my life on the covenant oath of God. And trust me when I tell you, this really is the first step in living the Christian life. It's also the energy behind every step. We, we never graduate from the state of helpless dependency upon him. We will never be able to achieve the promise of the covenant in our own strength or in our own willpower. We are utterly hopeless to bring them to pass, friend, to make them happen by resolve or, or dedication or by any program. We invoke the God who has made covenant, swearing by himself to achieve all of this in our lives. So, so we do not attempt to... <laughs> cleanse ourselves, but what we do is we bring to him, we lay before him the case of our sins and our weaknesses, our idols, our filthiness, and we call upon him to do what we can not, what we can never achieve by our promises. Wash us, cleanse us from it all, as Ezekiel would say. First John says what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hear those words. This word faithful really impacted me. I didn't associate it with someone forgiving another. You know, I thought of other words like kindness or compassionate or maybe loving, but faithful just didn't fit. To whom or what was he being faithful when he forgave us. When I discovered that faithfulness is one of the great covenant words of scripture, then boom, it made perfect sense to me. In forgiving, he is being faithful 
to the covenant, to Jesus, the covenant representative, and Hebrews, you know, uh, uh, the mediator of the new covenant, to whom he swore he would remember our sins and our iniquities no more. It is he who must write the law upon our hearts and minds, place his spirit within us, and cause us to walk in his ways. Not, not us. I'm going to do it this time. No, he does it. We lay our weaknesses and, 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 and the pull of the flesh before him and say, this is your work to draw me into your ways. The entire Christian life is lived out of the sure foundation of his faithfulness. Now, I don't have it on the screen, but you know the scripture in Philippians where it talks about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. <laughs> Do you really grab that? Work out your own salvation. I mean, right away we stop and we think, man, I, that's what I got to do. I got to work it out. I got to make it happen. No, that's not what it means. Work out your salvation. It's an old farmer term back in those days. Like you plant a garden, right? And then you got to weed and keep it going. You don't just plant it, walk away and come back and hope for it to be beautiful, fruitful. No, you got to work at it, right? But then he adds with fear and trembling. What you have there is this humongous thing in front of you. This humongous task that, that you should be doing. And you drop to your knees in shame, in fear. What it's saying is with work out your own salvation with no faith in your own ability. Semicolon. For it is he that, I'm going to old King James on you, for it is he that worketh in you. It's he that works in you to will and to do. In other words, it's him at work in you that's going to accomplish what needs to be accomplished by making this thing happen for his good pleasure. Does somebody want to get real excited about that? Look at, look at Philippians chapter 1 here. It says, being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It's not good one day and then, boom, I messed up the next day. Well, of course you're going to mess up the next day. He don't. Corinthians says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then take a look at Hebrews. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is Jesus. In, in covenant oath, God has taken it upon himself to conform our entire person to the image of the Lord Jesus, to write his law on our hearts. Most of us at least act as if we're, you know, it, it we're it's all on our shoulders to do it. We have to attempt to achieve our, our sanctification. We, you, you know, what, what God, what he does is he, he, he judges, he, he grades our poor efforts. Look at 1 Thessalonians. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, who also 
our feeling about our salvation, about our salvation, it's like a ride on a roller coaster. You know what I'm saying? It's temptations and trials that just spin around us. The anchor that holds us steady is not faith in our willpower or the consistency of our feelings, but his faithfulness by which he has promised to save us. What does it say in, in Corinthians? <coughs> no temptation has overtaken you <coughs> except, as, <coughs> except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now please make sure you understand this because this does not mean that you're going to have things happen to your, in your life, you know, and, and doggone it, you know, God's not going to put anything on you that you can't bear or deal with. No, that's not what this says. There's no such thing as that. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Of course you're going to run into things that you can't handle or do. I mean, if you could do it, what would you need God for? This is about temptation, that he makes a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Oh, man, there's so much here. So our shield in the day we battle with the powers of darkness is utter reliance upon his faithfulness. We are shielded by his resolve to save us and keep us. If we were, if, 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 if we were shielded by our resolves, <laughs> our shield would be basically cardboard. You know that and I know that. However, what we've got is this in Incredible, this invincible armor when we are shielded by the oath of God. Psalm 91 says what? He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Hello, somebody. His faithfulness stands guard over us. Whether we are awake, sleep, keeping us from the powers of darkness. We walk without fear, knowing that he is sworn with covenant oath to keep us. Second Thessalonians says this, that the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Understanding the oath of God, friend, takes all the pressure, all the tension out of life and introduces us to the rest, the rest of God. Talking about the whole burden of bringing the promises of the covenant to pass in our lives and putting that reality on God. Instead of laboring, and I don't know about you, but I would labor to the point of being exhausted, trying to please God, trying to make him happy, make sure I'm acceptable to him. Instead, we live in the rest of faith in his faithfulness. It's his oath to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for 
your word. That we stand here tonight are separate from you. Not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. We add nothing to, nor can we take away from that which you've accomplished on Calvary. The cross, the resurrection, the seed that became life. The light that the darkness could not comprehend. Lord, teach us to rest. To rest trust in you and to believe in everything that you have said. Guard us, guide us, bless, I pray. Lord, take your word tonight. Let us taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give him praise? Would you stand with me tonight? I don't know.